0: You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Uh,
1: good evening, everybody. Welcome uh, to ODI. Uh, thank you uh, for braving the weather. Uh, I'm new to London, uh, and I have been into believing that uh, the weather is only good here because it has been tremendous. Uh, But thank you for for coming out tonight uh, and welcome to ODI. My name is Alex Thier and I'm the executive director here. Uh, But I also want to welcome you not only to ODI but to the world stage because today, London is hosting a remarkable event, uh, the second family planning summit following up from the planning summit in 2012 in which the world got together uh, and made some pretty remarkable commitments. And so today's event, which is bringing together world leaders like those who are with us tonight, uh, is not only an important check-in moment to see whether those commitments have in fact been fulfilled, and I think we'll hear more about that tonight, uh, but also to propose new ambition um, and to respond to changes. There have actually been a few changes, I don't know if any of you have been paying attention, to them since the last summit, Uh, but it is a different world um, since 2012. Uh, I thought it was remarkable uh, to listen to Melinda Gates, for example. She talked about how in 2012 they were a little bit afraid. They were afraid about whether people would show up, they were afraid about whether people would make the commitments, they were afraid about whether those commitments would be delivered and have the impact that was promised. Um, And she began this discussion uh, last night by saying, now we are not afraid, uh, because we have seen real delivery, we have seen real commitments, and we have seen real progress, even in this short time. Uh, But at the same time, uh, I think a lot of people acknowledged uh, that things have changed uh, since 2012, not entirely all in positive ways. Uh, Last time around, the United States government was a global leader in pushing forward these commitments, um, and that deep support um, has not only evaporated, but in some ways has turned to animosity towards many of the issues that were on the agenda today. And as a result of that, uh, many of those, I think who said that they were not afraid, have stepped up and into the breach. Uh, Stepped into the breach both with their resources and their rhetorical commitment to this fundamental issue of family planning. And that's what brings us here tonight, uh, because we have seen some big commitments and bold statements, uh, not only today, but in the last few months. Uh, I heard Priti Patel, uh, the Secretary of State uh, here for development, uh, say today that if girls own their bodies, they own their future. I think that that is strong rhetoric. Um, but. What we have heard uh, also comes from those tonight, and so I am delighted to be having with us uh, Marie-Claude Bibeau, who is the Minister of Development and La Francophonie for Canada, and Zainab Ahmed, who is the Minister of State for Budget and National Planning in Nigeria. And we're going to hear perspectives uh, from a key leading donor, who in fact have launched tonight, uh, well, launched previously, but talking about tonight, um, a critical new development policy for Canada um, that is a feminist approach to international development. A bold statement that not only says, what does development have to do for women and girls, but in fact, I think in many ways, flipping the question on its head and saying with women and girls at the center of the potential for development progress and, in fact, what will define whether we can meet the sustainable development goals. Uh, And that policy actually also came with commitment. I'm sure you'll talk more about that. Uh, But they are, uh, as we say in the United States, putting their money where their mouth is and actually making commitments uh, not only broadly uh, to women and girls uh, but uh, to adolescents I just wanted to say that for this summit, ODI, which has been doing a lot of research on women and girls, and particularly adolescents, has a new report out for the summit um, on adolescence. um, And it shows some remarkable and disturbing things. It shows some incredible progress in some places uh, for women and girls. When uh, girls are given the opportunity to learn uh, and uh, to have access to family planning, Uh, pregnancy, adolescent pregnancy, drops way down. Uh, But at the same time, we know that levels of violence uh, towards women and girls, teen pregnancy, those things that stand in the way of women achieving their objectives uh, remain fundamental challenges for many countries. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, uh, you can send in questions for those who are watching live. Uh, You can also tweet. Uh, We're using her voice, her choice, which is there, right there. (laughs) Um, uh, So please uh, join uh, the conversation uh, and provoke us to have an interesting one, which is what I will try to do. Uh, So what we are going to do tonight is that we're going to have two speeches. Uh, We're going to watch a brief video first, uh, and then I'm going to introduce uh, the minister. um, And then after that, we will have a response uh, from Minister Zainab. So uh, as we say, uh, roll tape. To talk about that vision, uh, I'm proud to welcome to ODI uh, Minister Bibo, who was appointed uh, by uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in October of 2015. Uh, before entering politics, uh, Minister Bibeau did actually, in fact, work for the f- uh, agency formerly known as CEDA. Uh, the Canadian International uh, Development Agency with postings in Morocco and Benin, and then became a successful businesswoman. So, you know, of which you speak from all levels uh, of engagement and uh, society. Um, and uh, I want to again congratulate you on launching this new policy and welcome.
2: Thank you for that kind introduction. <laughs> Merci pour votre, votre invitation et pour cette occasion unique de vous présenter la nouvelle politique féministe d'aide internationale du Canada. And you all worry why I speak French. <laughs> I'm a proud Canadian. I have to speak French a little. <laughs> so it's wonderful to see so many of you here in this room and to know others are listening in from around the world. We are all partners in this challenging endeavor. And if we are to end poverty in the least amount of time possible, if we are to meet the SDGs, and if we are are to empower women and girls as they should be, evidence and knowledge sharing must be an integral part of our decisions and policies. Of course, not all governments hold this view. But in Canada, we have experienced what happens when decisions are made for political or ideological reasons and not driven by evidence. Since I became as the Minister of International Development a year ago, a year and a half ago, it has been clear to me that gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls must be at the center of everything we do to tackle the root causes of poverty, especially if we want to see lasting solutions to persistent development challenges. And that doesn't just matter to me. It matters to Prime Minister Trudeau, who is a strong feminist. So, what do we mean by that? Canada recognizes that only by pursuing gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls, will the world be able to achieve all of the UN Sustainable Development Goals? It cuts across all areas of development. Following extensive consultations with thousands of stakeholders over the last year, last month, I delivered on my mandate to refocus international assistance on the poorest and most vulnerable, as well as on fragile states. Canada's Feminist International Assistance Policy is designed to align with Agenda 2030 and the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals in a collective effort to end poverty and leave no one behind. It explicitly recognizes that if we cannot hope to accomplish this ambitious agenda, if half of the world's population is not included in decisions, in power, in opportunities, and it, is to everyone ad- and it is to everyone's advantage to amplify the voices of women and girls because we know that when, we can choose, that when women and girls can choose their own futures and contribute ful- fully to their communities, everyone benefits. When women are educated, they are empowered, their lives change. They tend to marry later, have fewer children, provide better health and nutrition for their families, and earn more income than women who didn't have the advantage of schooling. And we know that when legal and social barriers that discriminate against women are eliminated, remarkable changes happen. Women have access to capital. They start businesses get decent jobs, and they invest their profits in their families and communities. Though this understanding is not new in development, applying it effectively and systematically across all of our work will take determination and persistence to accomplish this fundamental shift. As it stands, more than 150 countries have laws that actively discriminate against women. More than 15 million girls are married before they turn 18. And 225 million women don't have access to the contraceptive method of their choice. As a result, more than 22 million women and adolescent girls have unsafe abortions every year. And let's not forget that one in every three women experiences physical or sexual violence. Canada continues to address the needs of women and girls in fragile and conflict-affected states, particularly through the implementation of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security. Canada has taken concrete actions in improving the health and rights of women and children by supporting the full range of sexual and reproductive health services. Canada recognizes that women and girls are powerful agents of change, development and peace. In fact, we are counting on their track record of transforming their families, communities and economies. Of course, sound public policy needs to be there as a foundation for change. I believe that in this area where Canada can, it, it, I believe that this is an area where Canada can make a difference. Canada's role in the world has historically been that of a global convener in areas such as peacekeeping, human rights and climate change. My colleague, Chrystia Freeland, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, recently laid out Canada's foreign policy priorities. First among them was the need to support a rules-based international order and all its institutions, and to find ways to strengthen and improve them. She said that Canada is now being called by virtue of of our unique experience, expertise, geography, diversity, and values to play a pivotal role in creating an order for a new century. And Canada's new feminist international assistance policy is a big, big, a big piece of that commitment. We were also well aware that people in Canada and our partners around the world look to Canada for leadership, sound policy, and support. It can't just be about public money, though. Canada's international assistance envelope will exceed $5 billion in 2017 <coughs> 2018. On a global scale, official development assistance represents $140 billion annually. But there are limits to how much it can grow. To achieve the SDGs by 2030, we'll require 5 to 7 trillion dollars. And while increasing governments' contribution is essential, we also need to seek out new partners and new investors. We need to be more innovative. We may even need to take a few risks, backed up by sound monitoring and evaluation. And finally, we must use our financial contributions to leverage additional investments. Recently, Canada allocated $300 million to the newly established Canadian Development Finance Institution in Montreal as a concrete avenue for leveraging investments in developing countries in areas like green energy and sustainable agriculture, empowering women and youth-led businesses. Returning to Canada's feminist international assistance policy for a moment, three core elements emerged from our extensive consultation process. Human dignity, the empowerment of women and girls, and building local capacities. We concluded that empowering women and girls can achieve all three, and it is the best way to reduce poverty and create a more inclusive, peaceful, and prosperous world. From now on, gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls will be integrated in all our programs, including humanitarian support. That's why I am here in London for the Family Planning Conference. En mars dernier, j'ai annoncé 650 millions de dollars pour appuyer les droits et l'accès des femmes et des filles à toute la gamme des services en matière de santé sexuelle et reproductive. Cet engagement illustre le leadership du Canada envers l'égalité des genres et le renforcement du pouvoir des femmes et des filles. Les projets que nous appuierons vont répondre à la violence sexuelle et fondée sur le genre, incluant la lutte contre les mariages forcés, les mariages d'enfants ainsi que les mutilations génitales féminines. This morning, I announced that 241.5 million dollars of the 650 million dollars commitment will be directed towards 19 initiatives focused on sexual and reproductive health and rights. And 65% of that amount will go to Africa. In fact, I come to you straight from a trip to DRC and Ghana, and just before that, South Sudan. I feel that if we are to make progress for women, it is crucial that Canada re-engage in Africa. That is one of the reasons why Canada is dedicating 50% of our bilateral international development assistance to sub-Saharan Africa within the next five years, with an emphasis on women and youth. And that work has already started. In Ghana, for example, we are helping farmers to thrive as the whole country becomes less dependent on food imports through our programs. We know that women make up the majority of agricultural workers in Sub-Saharan Africa. So, investing in this sector makes a major difference in their lives, their control over resources and their access to economic opportunities. When we recently helped women soybean farmers in the Upper West region, their yields increased by 380%. Ghana is just an example. More broadly, across the world, we will base our programming on six areas of action. The first, and our core area, is gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls. When we started to work on this priority, we began by looking at the numbers. Historical analysis of Canadian aid spending in this area revealed that less than 3% of Canadian investment were actually targeting gender equality and women's rights as their primary objective. This was not consistent with our ambitions to do better and our commitment to a feminist approach. Going forward, Canada will devote no less than 15% of its bilateral international development assistance to initiative to initiatives that directly target gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls. On top of this, we will increase our attention to integrating gender equality across all of our work. In the past, some 30 to 50% of our investments were completely gender blind. This is also changing so that by 2022, 95% 95% of all programming will contribute to robust robust gender equality outcomes. That includes a new $150 million program over five years dedicated to promoting women's rights and advancing women's leadership and gender equality through local women's organizations. The second focus is human dignity. Through the effective delivery of social services including health and education for poor and vulnerable populations especially those coping with armed conflict and natural disasters or lack of access to essential services. Emergency humanitarian assistance as well as development projects can help to bring often overlooked sexual reproductive and psychosocial health care as well as potable water, nutritious food, and quality education to these people. The third area is growth that works for everyone. Canada will support women and girls so that they can develop their skills and gain access to economic opportunities, decision-making, and leadership. For example, through technical and vocational training and entrepreneurship. We will also promote social inclusion, the right to work, the right to own property, and access to financing for women. Fourth, Canada is committed to helping the most vulnerable countries adapt to climate change, mitigate impact, make the transition to low-carbon emissions, and improve water management. We will help women improve crop resilience access water and natural resources and participate in decision-making on environmental matters. The fifth area of action is inclusive governance. We believe that democracy, responsible governance, peaceful pluralism and human rights are crucial to peace and development. As we learned during our consultations with more than 15,000 stakeholders in 65 countries, civil society are the ones who hold governments to account. That is why we will help women participate more fully in political life, strengthen women's power and access to justice, and create an environment that helps them participate in civil society. The sixth and final area is peace and security. Canada is committed to reducing threats And helping stabilize fragile states and those affected by armed conflict. We want to see women lead in peace building, as leaders and beneficiaries, as they have successfully done in places like Colombia. We're not only insisting that our partners deliver on gender equality. We are going to walk the talk in our own approval processes. From now on, If they are to get Canadian funding, our partners will need to consult women locally, involve them in decisions, and make sure they are being empowered throughout the project implementation. Our intention is to be more flexible and to invest our resources where Canada can have the biggest impact in reducing poverty and inequalities. We will be working on improving our processes and funding mechanisms to make them more innovative and better adapt to needs on the ground. And we will need to keep learning from collaboration with our partners to reflect lessons learned in how we do things. Think tanks have an important role to play in contributing to the evidence-based and holding governments to account. The expertise and experience of organizations like yours can help speed up the transition to gender equality. Think tanks like ODI can help to build global networks and keep the conversation going with what you are discovering through your approach to implementing the SDGs and tracking development progress. I will be looking to you for new and innovative ways to advance development. I know you you have already given some thought to how Canada can deliver results in the global development context. And we have much to learn from you about what works with women and girls, innovative financing, and lessons learned in emerging and fragile states. In fact, we have already been using your expertise to find ways to improve humanitarian policy and practice in response to conflict and natural disasters and to be more innovative in the humanitarian landscape and now i look forward to hear from my colleague <laughs> thank you uh. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the wonderful remarks and that that compelling invitation. Uh, I'm sure there's people racing back to their computers now. Uh, um, uh, uh, So uh, we are also really honored uh, to have with us um, from Nigeria, Minister Zainab Ahmed, who is the Minister of State for Budget and National Planning. Uh, She is here representing Nigeria as part of this summit, um, and she has a fascinating background uh, dealing with some tricky issues. Uh, She was the national coordinator of Nigeria's Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, uh, which is a tremendous uh, and I imagine somewhat challenging adventure, but that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. She's also served uh, with distinction in many senior positions in the Nigerian government and outside she was the CFO of Nigeria Mobile Communications um, and the managing director of the Kaduna Investment Company. Uh, so she's had some real interesting on the ground experience across the spectrum in trying to really make things work uh, for her people, for her government. Uh, so welcome to ODI. Uh, please uh, welcome to make some remarks and comments uh, on the minister's speech. Thank you.
0: Um, Thank you very much, Alex, for that introduction. Let me also uh, congratulate ODI for the work that you continue to do. The last time that I was here in June last year, it was an invitation of the Natural Resource Governance Institute, and we're talking, of course, about the extractive industries. And um, again, Marie-Claude Bieber, congratulations for this breakthrough policy that the Canadian government has uh, just launched. We are very excited about it, and, and I asked myself, why the choice of Nigeria to be here today? And I guess the answer could be that in Africa, Nigeria is the most populous country and that Nigeria is currently growing at a population rate that could see us becoming the third largest population in the world by the year 2050. We have uh, a population growth that currently exceeds the economic growth. So it's a very serious challenge, but we also see it as an opportunity. Nigeria also has one of the most serious humanitarian crises currently in the world. Uh, The Boko Haram insurgency has been raging on for about seven to eight years now, and we have a lot of people in very fragile conditions. As as you will imagine, uh, the majority of the people that are affected are women and children. So this, for us, is a very timely policy, and we take it as a very important one. We have also a situation where um because we have been a country that has been dependent on revenues from oil and gas with the decline of commodity prices we saw our country slipping into recession so we have insurgency raging in one part of our country we have um, crisis in the Niger Delta region the oil region where uh, uh, major revenue is we have, Dwindling revenue and very huge demand for economic development. So we when we came in two years ago, we decided to take stock, and in taking stock, we evolved an economic recovery and growth plan, which was designed to pull our nation out of um, uh, recession, but also to return the country out of the, uh, onto the path of sustainable growth. While we're doing this plan, We decided that growth that we uh, seek to attain must be an inclusive growth, that we must grow and bring everybody along. And we must make sure that the growth encompasses youth as well as women. We determined that there was no way our growth can be sustained if we're not bringing women into productive uh, enterprise and enabling the women to be empowered and be more productive. We decided that the best thing to do was to take advantage of the large population that we have. We have a very large population of youths, very active youths, about 30% of our population today, of the 188 million people, are youths between the age of 10 to 20. That is, we have a very large dependency rate of youths over the number of people working. It's a significant challenge, but it's also an opportunity. So we have to educate these youths. We have to educate the women. We have to create awareness that women must have the choice to decide what happens in their lives, including whether or not they adopt family planning, including whether or not they decide to have children now or later and with who. And this is important for us because we, we have found that the more you educate girls and women, the better families they're able to bring up and the more productive they become to the, to the society. In trying to address the problem, a president, uh, the acting president of Nigeria just a week ago launched a roadmap to attaining the dividends of the demography that we have. And we have designed uh, pro- programs to enable Uh, the youths acquire new skills that will make them productive to enable women go into productive activities so that they become more useful not only to themselves and the family but also to the society because the women are important they are more than 50 percent of the population and they are not contributing much currently to the growth of the country so if we're able to harness these numbers equip the women with finance with trade with awareness and education, and they become productive, our country will grow, and the growth will be a sustainable uh, growth. We um, have a society that is largely conservative. Um, There's Islam in the north. And there's also a lot of Christianity and Catholicism. And because of that, there is um, a need for us to evolve ways and means to communicate effectively through champions, through leaders, religious leaders, and traditional uh, rulers to educate the women, the girls, and even the men to understand that we must control our families, a situation whereby you have, we have uh, an average of 5.4 uh, uh, births to one woman is just too high and for us is not, uh, is not sustainable. So it's not about educating women alone, it's also educating the men. Because we have situations whereby a man can marry more than one wife, and uh, so when you restrict the numbers to the women alone without educating the men, the growth will not be, the improvement will not be realized as quickly as, uh, as, as we had hoped. Um, Honorable Minister, it seems as if this, this new policy was designed specifically for Nigeria because the priorities that you mentioned are the priorities that we seek to attain. We need to, we have identified the need to bring about gender balance in everything that we do and also to give special attention to women, to education of girls and to children. We also have determined that while we have a lot of people in very, very fragile state because of the insurgency, and we seek to uh, provide the basic human needs for them and to even resettle them into back into their communities, that we must do that with dignity, because they are our people. And uh, we must make sure that whatever we provide for them, whether it is food or drugs or water and sanitation, that we give them the assistance that they need and make sure that we maintain their dignity and, and respect. That in growing the economy, we must educate everyone and leave no one behind. And to do that, we the, the Buhari administration made a conscious effort in 2016 and developed one of the most robust social intervention programs, which has been rolled out last year and is continuing uh, this year. The social investment program had a very large provision of the budget of six uh, trillion, five hundred billion was dedicated for the social intervention program. And this is provided for, to create uh, jobs for, for for the youths, to provide financing for, for women so that they can engage in, in, in uh, different types of chosen uh, enterprises. It was, we also had a provision to provide meals to our primary school children, so that school retention will, uh, school, uh, children's uh, retention in school will increase, so that they can have better nutrition. And also we insisted that the food that the children will eat must be food that is grown in Nigeria. So that created a lot of trade and commerce for women, because the women were cooking the food, and the women were the ones selling the foods in the market, and then largely the women were farming the food as well. We had. Uh, um, the government enterprise program, which has given women small loans to be <laughs> able to get them to uh, get engaged in the business of, of of their choice. This is a program that we've started, and we've sustained it, and we're growing it as as the time goes along. And also, we have seen the need to continue to become more open and more transparent We're trying to encourage the citizens to participate in governance, especially in the budget-making process. We have um, a need to not only restore peace in the northeastern part of our country, but to uh, go into discussions about reconciliation, and women have been identified as the ones that must lead if the peace talks are going to be uh, stable and sustained. We have um, um, uh, deployed a significant level of psychosocial support to help the uh, children, the women that have been traumatized through through the process of, of the insurgents. So you see, this was really designed for Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we are excited about this. We hope you will uh, choose to work with us and we are ready to uh, work with the Canadian uh, government. We also I hope that ODI also will work with us, because we we want to be able to um, use data that is credible, and data not just about our country, but other countries that have similar situation uh, to Nigeria, to learn from the experiences of uh, other countries that have had similar situations. The program that we have been attending, the summit, was very valuable, because we saw examples of how uh, Bangladesh and Malawi and Pakistan that have had problems that uh, the type that we are having now, have they how they have turned around and have actually progressed significantly, we hope ODI also will work with us just as we hope that Honorable Minister that you will. Um, uh, a lot, a significant proportion of the 50% that is meant for sub-Saharan Africa to Nigeria. Thank you very much.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, uh, So this is great. We've got a little time for conversation. I'm gonna ask uh, you guys uh, a couple of follow-up questions. Quick responses are good because then we've got an audience who also will, I'm sure, have um, a lot of questions. Uh, Let me start with a tricky one for you. (laughs) Uh, No no free lunch or reception or whatever we're offering. Um, uh, You know, there's a reason we're having this conversation in 2017, because the issues that, that we have identified that the summit is about that your policy identifies are not easy issues. Uh, they are deeply culturally embedded questions that provoke controversy, um, that deal with long-standing traditional practices. And so it's not just a question, although the money is necessary, certainly not sufficient. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your theory of change, how the investments that you want to make in women and girls you think are going to lead to the sort of societal changes that are going to make it so that we're not having this conversation in 10, 20 or, or 30 years?
2: Well, I think we have to always keep in mind the main objective, and which is the one of the uh, SDGs, so ending poverty. This is ultimately what we want. And having been through this very important consultation in 65 countries Uh, well we came to the conclusion evidence-based conclusion (laughs) that the best way to have an impact on the development and to have a sustainable impact is really to empower women and girls Uh, so uh, I could speak so long but you said short short answers Mm -hmm. Uh, but I mean, uh, we're convinced that no country can afford to leave half of its population behind. So we really have to uh, make sure that we reach gender equality. And it has been proven uh, if by 20, well, we have analysis uh, are there to to say that um, if uh, we were to achieve gender equality by 2025, it would mean $12 trillion additional to our uh, global GNI. um, (laughs) translation sometimes Uh, so this is really the, the ultimate objective is to end poverty so we have to end inequalities so we have to empower women and girls
1: so let me let me ask you a specific question. I'll, I'll ask you something similar. Let's take the issue of child marriage, right? Child marriage is a leading cause, obviously. Adolescent pregnancy of women uh, and girls not completing their schooling and education, not getting into the workforce. All of the things that we think are going to be necessary to achieve the objectives that you've outlined. I think the figure uh, coming from UNFPA in our report is 15 million uh, girls worldwide um, Maybe boys and girls in teen marriage. So somebody can correct me if that's wrong. Somebody who knows better than I do. Um, so this is, but this is not just a, you know let's let's come up with a clever program because these are these are challenging customary practices, tough to get out of. How do you think uh, Canadian assistance will be able to tackle an issue like that specifically?
2: First, we have to have the conversation with the different countries, the leaders, and also the traditional and, uh, and the religious leaders in the field. And I was in Ghana a couple of days ago, and I was um, so pleased to see that um, in the community we visited, uh, there was the school was supported by Right to Play, and the, the students has prepared uh, a theater, a drama, uh, to present in front of their community. And there might be, maybe there was, uh, 500 person, mothers, fathers, and uh, traditional leaders also. So they were allowed by the traditional leaders to talk about menstrual hygiene. And I've been told that they, uh, they have been doing this exercise talking about early marriage, talking about gender-based violence. So we have to have this conversation. This is the first step. And to see that in many countries, the government is including uh, it in its uh, priority and development plan that it's important to reach gender equality. And uh, so it's very important to have it at the high level, but we have to work with the grassroots also. And this is why we have announced, uh, we have saved $150 million over five years to work with local women's organization because we know that we have to work uh, in really with the grassroots with the women organization because they know their priorities they know their challenges they know their community and how to address uh, to have these conversation and to, and to progress and I was I had a conversation with some uh, traditional leaders and with some chief imam in particular and he was telling me okay, I asked him okay tell me how do you address the subject because it was and and the group of uh, Catholic and Muslim leaders were together to f- to to change this cultural uh, uh, way of uh, having early marriage because they were together these leaders together they were uh, they wanted to stop early marriage because they believe that we were, that girls should be educated and should be empowered so it's so good to hear from. Uh, local leaders that uh, they they are with us in, in this and they are uh, they appreciate our support. So we have to be respectful in the way we do it and I think the best, the most respo- respectful way is to accompany local groups and not try to. So it's interesting to see how, I would say, Canadian media address the issue because they focus a lot on contraception and on abortion. But We shouldn't focus on what is one mean, and we have to keep the objective in mind is to end poverty, and then we have to end inequality.
1: Hmm. Thanks. Mr. Ahmed, uh, going from the global to the local, uh, one of the challenges uh, that Nigeria has that you articulated well is not only the size of the birth rate overall, but particularly challenges with young girls, getting married, having children. What has worked, uh, or what do you think is needed uh, for Nigeria to tackle that specific problem?
0: Well, what we need is, uh, like uh, Mr. Bibero has said, is to engage the people at the community level. We need to use um, traditional rulers, religious leaders, women leaders to educate the women. And the education is around the benefits that would accrue for the women engaged, uh, being engaged in spacing their, their family. The benefit is uh, the women will become more healthy. The children that they will have will be healthier because they're more evenly spaced. They will have more income. They will have more time to be able to engage in productive activities before the next pregnancy. And they will have more income to spend on the children because the children will now be will now be less, we must use the religious leaders because the religion, uh, I am a Muslim, a Muslim uh, Islam does not say you cannot do family planning. Islam actually encourages uh, parents to space their children, to give time for the mother to heal properly before she has the next, the next child. But our culture gets mixed up and is mistaken for, for the religion. The religion does not encourage early marriage. Um, to the extent that a girl is not matured or developed enough. the religion does not encourage is a, is a culture and a tradition. So we, need, we must engage the religious leaders, we must engage the traditional rulers and women leaders at the community level to educate the women and the girls as to the harm that this practice is, uh, is invoking, not only on them, and the benefit that it will, that will accrue to them as individuals, to their families to the community and to the larger society.
1: You mentioned in your remarks, uh, and I don't want to pretend to be an expert on the origins or motivations behind Boko Haram, but suffice it to say, there is now a world famous uh, problem in Northern Nigeria from a group that is almost specifically responding to negatively to what we're talking about tonight, a negative backlash towards education and particularly education for girls and the kidnapping and these terrible things that have gone on clearly what you are speaking of is a future uh that 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 needs to address that challenge in your own society so do you think that your work and what you have committed to here is going to provoke further backlash or help you overcome it
0: no it's going to make a significant difference because in the northeastern part of nigeria uh, the statistics is that the girls are very disadvantaged in terms of education. It is not too long ago that more and more girls are being educated. The the, the root cause of Boko Haram is under development, is not education, it's under development. And we are trying now to make sure that development is brought to the northeast. After humanitarian assistance, the next thing we're addressing is to bring about uh, development. No sane human being that is gainfully employed, that has a stable family, will risk their lives and go and become a criminal, which is what the uh, Boko Haram uh, insurgents are. Thanks.
1: Let me me take this back to you, Minister Bebo. Canada, like every country, spends its resources in its national interest. And Canada, through the announcement of this policy, has clearly determined that this is part of its national interest. Can you talk a little bit about why a feminist development policy is actually in the Canadian national interest? Not just for the good that it can do in other places, but why is it good for Canada? Uh,
2: Well, I think as Canadian, uh, it's part of our values to support and to help the poorest and the most vulnerable, but you're right, there are interests uh, which are, uh, let's start with global health, for example. When we invest in the health sector, uh, of, of any developing countries, because we've invested a lot uh, to end polio, uh, HIV, AIDS, uh, TB, malaria, for example. When we invest to, to end these diseases, we help the countries to strengthen their uh, health system. So when uh, we have, uh, like Ebola, when Ebola, Ebola, the Ebola crisis arrived, these countries who were have been supported for the other diseases were better uh, organized, and uh, ready to face a new crisis. And it helps globally to uh, avoid the um, dissemination or the, the propagation of, of, of Ebola, the, the spread of Ebola uh, in a more intense or more globally. So it's one example in terms of global health. We do have a benefit uh, in helping in, sup- in improving the health sector Health uh, department in developing countries. Uh, in Africa, you talked about the demographic uh, explosion and so many, so many young people. And uh, I, th- I believe that these young uh, ad- adolescent boys and girls, they want to have hope. They want to, you know, have a chance uh, to be educated, to 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 have um, a job, to earn a living. And to contribute to their country. But if there's no hope because of underdevelopment, what do they have left? They might turn to an armed group uh, because it's the only op- opportunity they have to earn a revenue. Or they may just grow the flux of refugees, which is not what we want and it's not what they want either they want to build their country they want this is what they want so it becomes a matter of peace and security so we have to support them in developing their economy uh, supporting the education system supporting creating jobs over there to help peace and security in the region uh, because peace and security becomes a, a global uh, issue if it if it grows and uh, this support to economic growth for, for peace and security is al- also um, new opportunities for uh, any other market. So it's uh, it's a growing market in Africa. And uh, we have many businesses who would like to do business in Africa. So creating a um, safe space uh, to do business is also good for us.
1: Thanks. Uh, Mr. Ahmed, uh, Nigeria is one of the largest recipients of U.S. foreign assistance. Uh, There have been major cuts, proposed cuts, announced to that assistance. So I have a two-part question for you. The one is, how concerned are you about the support that Nigeria gets from the United States and that could go away? And then the second part of the question is that as you talk to Minister Bibo and others who are supporting Nigeria, what is it that you most need? The, the, the needs are, are, are large. Um, Nigeria also has a large and growing economy, maybe not growing as quickly as you'd like, uh, probably not taxed as effectively as you would like. Uh, but um, donor money is not going to solve Nigeria's problems. It can help. What, what is it that you most need from the donors, and, and how concerned are you about potential cuts from, from US assistance?
0: Let me just say, what we need most from the donors is partnership. Uh, We're not putting our hands out for hands out to come to us because we do have resources in the country and we're trying to mobilize domestic resources. We have a situation where, in the past, we have not taken advantage of the resources that we have. And the most important resource that we have in our country is actually the people. We have a very large population. We have people, uh, we have people that are very entrepreneurial. We have a lot of natural resources, the most important one being agricultural potentials in the country. The most important resource for us is not oil, it's not gas. We have arable lands, we can grow literally everything, and we've started. We've come to a point where now where uh, we're growing rice, and largely before we were importing rice. Rice is the major food produ- uh, uh, food that we eat in the country. We've started exporting some food items so we can earn foreign exchange from agriculture. We're also developing the mining sector and um, uh, it, it is it is growing and more uh, is being produced locally and being consumed um, locally. We're concerned about the reduction in development aid from assistance, but we don't think it's going to break the camel's back because we have other partners and we have also stepped up the efforts in t- collecting taxes uh, internally. Um, we're not increasing taxes, but we have, we're have. we working a lot to expand the tax base and also to give incentives for people who were not paying taxes before to pay back taxes. So w- there are different sources of revenues that um, we have identified and that we are growing systematically. We hope to be able to grow uh, to the point when Development assistance is a complement, not something we depend on.
1: Mm. Okay. That's good. Maybe Canada should think about investing in female tax inspectors for Nigeria. Just uh, trying to. Good to good try, governance, yeah. But, uh, yes. Uh, all right, let's open up uh, to the audience. Uh, what we're going to do is invite uh, questions. If you have a comment, please make it very brief. If you have a question, also make it brief. Start by identifying yourself. Uh, and I'll take a couple, and then we'll go back and forth until we run out of time. Uh, so, looking over here.
0: Shall I go ahead? Please. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Faryam Mohiuddin, and I work for the Tax Justice Network. And so this is actually a question for, uh, Minister Ahmed. Um, how important, or rather, what is the role for donors in helping Nigeria tackle one of the biggest issues facing women, which is unpaid care work. And if uh, Minister Bibo would like to talk about how Canada would consider helping a country like Nigeria tackle that issue.
1: Great. Thanks. So you guys have to keep track because I'm going to add a couple of questions here, okay? Uh, (laughs) Do you need paper? I'm sorry. I'm springing that on you. Uh, Do you have a pen? Okay, good. Up in the front row here.
2: Hi, thanks very much. Uh, I'm Molly Anders uh, from DevEx. Um, Canada is clearly charting a path for itself in the family planning space, and it's remarkable also to see
0: this kind of historic departure from uh, the U.S. administration, who is who's typically quite aligned in terms of aid goals. But I wonder how the Trump administration is serving as sort of a, a lessons learned. Uh, I think it's 18 months now until Canada's next election, and Nigeria I think it's maybe two years. What lessons can we learn about making sure that this policy lives out through those elections and becomes actually like a legacy of Canadian development?
2: Hmm.
1: interesting question. And the gentleman right behind here Malcolm Bruce, uh,
0: Malcolm Bruce uh, member of the House of Lords, former chairman of the Inter- International Development Committee, first of all, welcome back canada we 've missed you for the last few years <laughs> so i 'm with the last question let's and it's it's good to take, see you taking such a proactive part in the conversation and leading the debate. That's great. But I have a very specific question, which is the connection between gender and feminist issues and disability. Because all of these issues about early marriage, lack of contraception, unsafe abortion, leads to a, a, high, a higher proportion of disabled people in a situation where they're very often unsupported. Do you agree that there should be a connection? Because if people realize that if they don't address the, if you, you, the feminist issues, the disability issues will actually get worse.
1: Okay, I'm going to call that a melange of uh, a couple of different issues. Uh, so why don't I go first to you, Mr. Rebo, take what you want, and then we'll go to Mr. Ahmed. Uh,
2: okay, let's start <laughs> by the last one. Uh, yes, I actually we we want to we uh, my mandate is to refocus on the person, the most vulnerable, and obviously the disabled uh, person or person living with a disability uh, are v- vulnerable, especially in an emergency settings. Uh, we, we realize that and we do support. But we decided to put the focus on women empowerment because I, I would tend to say that if we can empower women, they will the attention they will pay to other vulnerable, vulnerable groups, including uh, people living with a disability and LGBT also, uh, will be uh, better addressed. So we, we actually, we do link it together, but uh, yeah, we put more emphasis on on half of the population. How this policy will live through uh, any government? <laughs> Hopefully we'll be there more than four years. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we've been doing this policy thinking that it should last at least 15, no matter the government. Uh, and well, we're, we've decided to, on these orientation and priorities based on facts. Uh, so we hope that it will survive um, after 15 years. <laughs> no, but, um, well, politics is, is what it is. But still, we are uh, making commitments, multi-year commitments, uh, because it's also good practice in terms of development and humanitarian assistance uh, we're trying to build partnership we're trying to build new partners or also new investors and new new donors around these subjects so uh, obviously if we bring uh, private sector into it and that uh, they leverage uh, we use our Canadian contribution to leverage private investment I think it will thre- strengthen uh, our priorities and our actions uh, in the world
1: anything about unpaid care
2: I think it will okay. be more applicable. Well, um, we, we have a culture
0: where what you said, be, women working are not paid, we don't see it like that. Because we don't have, for example, in Nigeria an old people's home. Uh, you the, the, the practice of taking a child to a daycare in, in the local communities is simply not there. The women are at home, they take care of the children. They take care of the aged. And they don't get money for doing that, but they get benefit and respect from the family for doing that. Remember that if they don't do that, then somebody else will have to be engaged to to do that. And this is so because those women, they're not educated. They were brought up to be housewives, so that's all they do 24-7. That's all they do. They live at home. They work to take care of the house and the, the ch- children and the aged that are at home. So in the European context, you will think that these are women that are working and not being paid. But in the African context, they're simply taking care of the home.
2: I would say that with our uh, commitment for local Organ, uh, women's organization. Uh, we will leave up. We we'll leave. We will leave it up to them to decide what are their priorities to be empowered and to defend their rights. So we'll see if they choose this as being a priority. Or, but to be honest, I I haven't heard that much during the consultation on that. I've heard much more about early marriage, for example.
0: But but, but also that if these women had an opportunity to be empowered to do something else, then they wouldn't be just at home taking care of. Uh, children and and the aging
1: Great, thanks. A uh, couple more. Let's go over to the other side of the room. Uh, or not go to the other side. In the far, far back. Thank you. Yeah, there are two seats up front if people sitting on the floor are uncomfortable. Uh, Please, go ahead.
2: Hi, um, my name is Sophia Bourne. I have um, a question for Minister Bibo. Um, Could you elaborate a little bit more on where there's a place in your policy for engagement of boys and men? Because that's obviously a crucial part of any feminist policy. Thank you.
1: Great. And uh, just in the middle here...
2: Hi, uh, yeah, Louise Hemphrey from uh, Womankind Worldwide. Uh, uh, you talked earlier on about engaging uh, grassroots women's rights organisations, and I was wondering if uh, you could maybe divulge a little bit more how you plan to do that when you're coming from such a position of power over them. And you know, can you can you really, uh, you know, give them the freedom that they need to engage the way they may that they want? Uh, from that particular power dynamic.
1: Uh, Great. Well, I'm going to ask a a follow-up question from online as well, uh, because we have Jen watching from Canada, um, uh, who also wants to ask, I think somewhat similarly to that second question, whether your approach is one that is focused primarily on working through governments to make policy changes but also maybe funding uh, be interesting for people to know whether the Canadian government does budget support or doesn't support governments directly um, or do you do most of your work and delivery through civil society and non-governmental organizations?
2: Okay. Uh, yes, uh, it's true that I haven't talked about boys and uh, and men in the, in this specific speech. I should have. Uh, I usually do. Uh, definitely, we have to engage uh, boys and men. And uh, when we talk about uh, offering the the full range of sexual and reproductive health services, it starts with education, sec- comprehensive sexual education to boys and girls, because. Uh, what, depending on the country and depending on the culture, uh, why uh, girls stop going to school uh, is different. So in some cases, it's because of, well, early marriage, either because of the, the local culture or because the parents just are desperate and don't see any other opportunities or any other way to to just take care of their of their daughter. Um, in other uh, cases, it's uh, violence, uh, gender-based violence. I come back from DRC. It's the situation is, is, uh, is and you know about it too. Um, and in other cases, it's only lack of information. They, they have early, if I may say, uh, active li- uh, sexual life and they just don't know about what's going on and uh, about contraception, about anything, about uh, sexually transmitted disease. So we definitely have to provide this information to youth, uh, to boys and girls, so they can uh, understand, make uh, good decisions, and uh, have the supply if needed. To uh, t- So th- you're, you're right. And we need men <laughs> to... Um, to support uh, and to uh, build new new good policies and we were talking about traditional leaders uh, their opinion uh, is very important within the community so we definitely need their engagement and their leadership within the community to change the rules and the way things are going on. Um, concerning the other question, budget support, Canada is doing budget support with some countries, uh, but not with all. It's really a matter of uh, having a uh, long-term relation, having trust in in the local government, having uh, being, um, uh, depending on the level of of confidence of of the, the governance, if there's corruption or not, Uh, So, uh, depending on the country, we do sometimes provide direct budget support to the Minister, not the Minister, but the Department of Education or Health, or sometimes directly to uh, the Finance uh, Department to apply, for example, in Senegal, it applies to the the whole development uh, plan for the country so it goes through the finance department but it always comes with uh, technical assistance and with uh, very uh, serious um, uh, follow-up and monitoring and uh, report uh, when we do so. In other countries where we don't feel ready to proceed with the budget support, uh, we we, we give Uh, the the, the money through uh, international, uh, Canadian or local organizations uh, to support the the system. So we can work with uh, UNICEF or the Red Cross or uh, UNFPA to support the health sector uh, or the education sector. So it really depends on on the country. But one sure thing is that we want to build sustainable uh, development. We want to support a country to own its own uh, education or, or health department, uh, a system actually, so it's good when we can uh, do it as close as we can with the, with the local government so they can own it. They have to invest in it themselves uh, take, uh, to build their local capacities and the idea is we want the country to own its, its to take its own responsibility and just to be there to support.
1: And I think maybe a question for both of you, the second question about, you know, how, grassroots, I mean, it's, uh, uh, how, how do you, you know, you've got the, the money and the power, the policy agenda setting, uh, how do you actually work effectively with grassroots organizations so that you're not just directing them, you're actually promoting and encouraging them to develop their own perspectives.
0: Well, if I may, um, earlier on I said that the only way we can move, make progress is to begin to create awareness at the community level. In some of the areas uh, in Nigeria, it's only women groups that can actually access the women, because the women are not, don't freely mix with the men. So. And then in the southern part of the country, in the southeast, the southwest, the south-south, they have this culture of um, groups. There's the, they call it age group. So there's women age group, there's uh, men age group. And the, so the, the, those groups are very, very strong. They meet very, very regularly. They exchange information. They support each other. And anything you're going to do at the community level, you'll be going through them anyway. So it's very easy to use them to pass information across to, to the women. Whereas in the northern part of the country, uh, the women are in some cases in uh, not allowed to come out and mix freely with the men. So it's only women groups that can access them to create the awareness. Even when community health workers go about their work to distribute family planning products, they have to they they normally go together with um, uh, women groups to help them uh, get access and also to better disseminate the information on what they are uh, there for. Anything
1: mm-hmm. to add to that, or should I go? All right. Well, let's. Uh, okay, so uh, next round of questions. Sarah? Thank
2: you. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Sarah Pantuliano from ODI. Thank you for mentioning the partnership with ODI and, you know, making reference to our contribution to um, shaping Canada's humanitarian policy in particular. Now. One area where we really need your leadership badly is to try and help make humanitarian response less gender blind, and we would be delighted to work, you know, more with you on that. Uh, you mentioned that Canada will walk the talk. Can you elaborate on how you're going to make sure that your operational partners don't hide behind the usual excuse that it's impossible <laughs> or difficult, but often they say impossible to have, you know, a, a more attention to gender equality in crisis, in emergencies, in conflict, because they say it can be done, and of course it can. Mm.
1: This gentleman up front here.
3: My name is uh, Celestine Malanda. I'm here representing a political party called the United Congolese Party, led by uh, a Christian Malanga, uh, who used to be uh, one of the military in the Democratic Republic of Congo. But because you have experienced what uh, uh, the woman was going through, uh, I know everybody have done about the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is currently called uh, a capital of rape. Everywhere you go, you know, I mean, women are being you know raped in a very appalling way. You know, on the streets, even in the in the prison uh, when they are they are they are in jail. For five years sentencing, should they end up. You know, I mean, uh, they sentencing with uh, two or three uh, children, and the, the people supposed to protecting them, they are the one raping them. The security officer was supposed to protect to, to protect them to protect them, they are raping them. So he decided to 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 to, to, to join the politic. Uh, I mean, Christian Malanga. Uh, and now the gender is. Uh, in the center of his uh, 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 policies. no. I'm just wondering whether Canada, you know, uh, with its policy, feminist, feminist policy approach, will be dealing differently, you know, rather than being like a stereotype. If there is a way specifically to deal, you know, with a, 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 a rape issue or how the Canada can partner with countries like the DRC, you know, to address a, you know, a gender issue. Mm. Thanks for that question. And, and let me
1: let me add, because uh, I think it's very important, we haven't really talked about violence against women yet in this session. And, you know, the, I think the specific question on DRC, since you were just there, is a great one, and I'd love to hear that. But more broadly, um, it would be interesting, you know, the, the, the SDGs are, are universal. And one of the reasons that the SDGs are universal is not just to make everybody feel good, but it's because these problems continue to exist all around the world. The problem of violence against women is not only a problem uh, of Africa or Asia or Latin America, but it is also a European and North American problem. Um, and so maybe you can talk a little bit about um, uh, the continuing challenges at home of dealing with these and what we've learned from that and both the, the challenge but also the humility that comes with knowing that these are, these are challenges that continue to exist in our own societies.
2: Uh, Okay, so talking about the SDGs in Canada, yes, we do recognize that we have uh, some work to do. And the best example uh, in our case might be the, uh, our relation with the indigenous uh, people, our First Nations. Uh, we Data shows that um, children uh, do not reach the same level of education. And uh, we have a very important... Um, Commission right now on uh, missing and. Uh, missing and murdered. Thank you. Thank you. Missing and I, I was looking for the word in English. Missing and murdered uh, women uh, within our indigenous community. And we definitely have uh, very important work to do, and our government has uh, committed um, historic uh, investment to in this reconciliation process. Investment also in um, youth education, in bringing potable water, uh, affordable housing, and uh, also the issue of uh, gender-based violence is is critical uh, in the north of the country. We do have this problem uh, like any other country uh, everywhere. But it's, it's very significant in the north, and uh, we have made significant commitment toward that. Uh, SDGs, the main objective is to end poverty. So I would say that another important commitment we've made in this regard is to invest significantly for uh, affordable housing, uh, which is, well, the one strong element of, of, of having a decent life is to have a decent home. Uh, so we, we recognize that we have work to do. And obviously we are very committed in uh, regard to climate change. And we could talk about the 17 goals, but let's say that these are uh, the, main, the main ones. Um, DRC, yes, I was there uh, five days ago. Uh, it was very hard to, to see, to witness the importance of the, the violence against women in this country. And uh, you, you asked if we or how could we partner with DRC? Well, we first need to have a government in place, and, and uh, we are looking forward for an elec- uh, the election in DRC uh, to have uh, a government to work with, and we hope to see a government who will be really dedicated to uh, the security of its people and uh, to, uh, to and. This uh, major problem of violence against women, starting with the uh, having a, a responsible uh, army who is protecting the population, and uh, I can give you an example of a very impressive project I visited, uh, which is in uh, partnership with uh, UNFPA. It's called uh, the One Stop Center. It was the first I visited many health. Uh, clinics supporting uh, sexual and reproductive health, uh, providing uh, services, but this one was special because it included four, was called the One Stop Centre, so it included the medical assistance, psychosocial assistance, but also the justice and the economic um, empowerment component. So obviously it starts with uh, receiving the, the the victims or the survivors should we call them and to provide them um, all the sur- medical services and if they can get there within 72 hours we can provide them with the medication to avoid a pregnancy or to uh, avoid uh, not you know be infected by uh, HIV AIDS and um, so and provide any medical assistance that they need in the first time then uh, the team is working with the, so- the psychologist so to support them because we understand that they've been through violent experience and they, they, they're going through a trauma so they need psychosocial assistance. And when they're ready, they can go to the next step which is uh, having this conversation with a lawyer, with a police officer, and police officers have been trained to deal with gender-based violence. And uh, they are able to um, uh, sue, sorry, sue, the perp- the perpetrators, and to and I I've had many testimony that the the perpetrator has been sent to jail. So just seeing that justice, uh, you know, we can see justice. That that was that was good. And uh, when I I talked with these women, uh, obviously they talked about what they've been through, which was obviously very hard. Uh, women and girls and boys, young girls and boys, Uh, but they were putting more emphasis on the last part, which is uh, because this One Stop Center gives them uh, new tools or training or supplies to start a new business or to... To, to earn a revenue and to be able to have a second chance. If, it's, if we're talking about a kid, we're, well, it's then education, which is offered to the kid. And this economic uh, tool, these economic tools are offered to the mother of the kid. So to help them start a new life. And they were so grateful to Canada for offering this second chance. So there's a lot to do. But uh, in, so at the small scale, we, we have very, we have project that makes a difference in the people's lives.
1: Maybe you could both say something really quickly about why it's not necessary to sacrifice our principles of gender equality during humanitarian crises.
0: Well, l- let me say that also, in respect of uh, the abuse that women go through, we have had this nasty experience of, the abduction of the Chibok girls, which has continued to live with us, even though some of them have been liberated, but it's there's still a significant number, up to about 100 uh, of them that are not yet uh, uh, liberated. So it's something that, that lives with us. And even when, even the others that have been recovered, the stories of the indignities that they went through lives with all of us. They are going through a lot of uh, psycholo- uh, psychosocial support not only for themselves but also for their, their families because the families were also were extremely traumatized uh, for not knowing where the, their daughters are so psycholo- psychosocial support is not only provided for the women and the girls that have been affected but also for the boys and men that have chosen to leave the insurgents and come back to uh, uh, mix with uh, the the people. Oftentimes, when these people come back, you find that they are not not behaving like normal people. It's as if they have been brainwashed, and there is a lot of work that needs to be done to reorient them to be able to integrate more easily back to society.
1: Final thoughts on the humanitarian before we yes, wrap up? Uh,
2: humanitarian, in the beginning when we talked, we started to talk about this uh, feminist policy and uh, having the obligation to have a women empowerment component within every project, I had pushback for the humanitarian uh, side, but it didn't, um, at the end, after having so many discussions, uh, no, we decided that we will maintain this obligation um when we are talking about bilateral projects, so uh, when we have one partner working in one country, this is definitely an obligation. They have to consult. And it was interesting when I was in Iraq recently, uh, one organization thanked me for obliging them to have this women component. And I said, come on, guys, you're the one who told me that's the wa- that that was the right thing to do. And I said, yeah, but you know, when we are into it, we don't always take the time to... To, to apply what we know is good. So uh, definitely in our bilateral projects. Uh, for the multilateral, so when we give a, a contribution to, to UNICEF or to the Red Cross, or which is to be applied on any uh, emergency um, situation, then it's not linked as closely, but the representative of Canada around the tables where the decisions are made uh, as the responsibility to make sure that we push this agenda and we do, <laughs> and I, 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 I get feedback on that, that Canada is really um, uh, pushing hard on our multilateral partners to make sure that uh, there, is, there are uh, women focus uh, in our interve- intervention in emergency settings.
1: So I've got some good news and bad news. Uh, The bad news is is that people here and online have more burning questions, and I'm afraid we're not going to get to them. But the good news is is that this conversation is going to continue in a more intimate fashion outside. We have a reception. Uh, So we're gonna end by just asking both of you, uh, first Minister Ahmed and then the last word uh, to Minister Bibeau, if you have any final concluding remarks Uh, burning things, and I'm just going to throw in something that you may choose to respond to or not respond to. We trended on Twitter, so thank you. Um, You should continue to tweet right now because what I'm going to say is that there is one Twitter user in the world who needs to hear this conversation, Uh, and there have been some subtle attempts, but I'm going to close by being less subtle. You have a Prime Minister Who has made it his business both to focus on the issues that we are talking about tonight and to be a person who can speak to his large southern neighbor? Um, So, what do what 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 can Canada do to to turn around um, this challenge? Uh, Because uh, it's it's you know it's it's time to stand up and 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 be counted. Uh, But let me give you uh, so choose or not to respond to that But let me give you each uh, a a minute to wrap us up and then we'll we'll close
0: Um, Let me just say um, That because of the assignment that I undertake coordinating the humanitarian response in Nigeria, let me close on that The humanitarian crisis in Nigeria is one of the largest currently in the world We have had a lot of support from development partners including from Canada But the government of Nigeria decided it was going to take the lead role. And we have turned things around to the extent that the government of Nigeria is leading in the humanitarian response in providing food and providing health and uh, resettlement uh, plans. We continue to appreciate the support of our partners, but we wanted to uh, be the ones in front for our our people. And uh, we are showing that it is possible, uh, we have just uh, embarked on a, on the largest food distribution. I think that has been reported in in recent years. About thirty thousand metric tons of food is being distributed as we speak to the people in the northeast that that is uh, that are in need. Uh, so is drug in very difficult circumstances. We are using all kinds of logistics, including air, air drops, and in in a lot of cases. Uh, using rigs and so on and so on. We needed to show the uh, our partners that while the work that they're doing is important to us, that we also have seen that we need to up our uh, our leadership so that what they're doing is supporting us, not the not the other way around. Thank you.
2: Um, I, I would say that I, I love to hear uh, th- your conversation because this is exactly what we want to do. We want the local governments to own this business and to be there just to, to be supportive and collaborative. So it's music to my ear. <laughs> and uh, I will answer your question by saying that Canada will stand for its values and it includes human rights, gender equality, and, uh, which is not a value but we, uh, we will also work hard on climate change And uh, we will try to convince uh, other partners to join uh, using evidence. And to do so, we need you.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, in a non-religious way, I I wish you godspeed. (laughs) Uh, uh, And uh, you guys have been a fantastic audience. Thank you for joining us. And particularly join me uh, in thanking uh, two powerful and talented women who have chosen to devote their lives and energies to promoting and empowering millions of other women. So, thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, Find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.